You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host, Chad Dundas from BleacherReport.com. And joining us as all, well, not always, right? But joining us again this week. Have from fun. MMA Junkie and USA Today. It's your friend and mine, Ben Folks. Ben, we were off last week. You were uh, out on family vacation. Uh, you are you rested and ready and and willing to return now to the co-main event podcast with vigor and spirit? Are you enjoying yourself upbraiding me for taking some some much needed R and R time with my family? I have not yet begun to upbraid you, sir. <laughs> Let's get it over with then. It seemed like you uh, did a lot of activities out there. Yeah, you were at a, a lake in northern Idaho. Is that right? That's right. Was the lake on fire? Because there are a lot of forest fires in this area. We kind of got lucky with that. That. Uh... It seemed like everything south of us was on fire, but the entire time we were there, no smoke, clear skies. It was lovely. Here's what I noticed. You doing a lot of activities and the rest of your family not doing any. Well, that's... So I had it in my mind that you're out on your paddleboard while your wife chases your children around some sort of log cabin trying to keep them from killing themselves, then prepares all the meals and... and, and Cook washes all the dishes. I'll Is that have, pretty close to accurate? It's completely... You, meanwhile, you're you're snoozing in a hammock with a half-empty bottle of bourbon clutched to your chest? Only, if only that was what happened. We actually we took turns on the paddleboard. Thank you very much. What happened, what I did not realize was a huge mistake, was the first day we were there and my wife was like, let's rent a kayak. And I was like, okay, I like kayaking. That sounds fun on the lake. And then... Like, as soon as I sat down in the kayak, I remembered, oh, yeah, what's the most annoying symptom of my pile of trash neck? It's that as soon as I sit down for any length of time, I'm in a lot of pain and my arm goes numb. Right. So you had to get to deal with the stand-up variety. Well, and see, then I was like, my wife was like, okay, how about tomorrow we went a paddle, stand-up paddleboard? And I was like, well, then I have to beat myself up as exactly the kind of hippie worthy of disdain that I that I've long heap scorn upon and but then i th- did the math on it and realized that actually might be the most perfect lake activity for me at this point in my my neck development so your neck has forced you to compromise your morals and turn you into a stand-up paddleboarder i gotta admit it was really fun did you do any yoga on your stand-up paddleboard because that's a thing i have a newfound respect for those people who do yoga on those things i was i was really proud of myself for not even falling over once even though there was a point where I could hear these assholes in a boat nearby watching me and practically taking bets on when I was going to fall. While you were out, out of luck, assholes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you put one Cat-like on Cat-like reflexes yeah. here. Good for you. Um, while you were out, we reposted an old episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast. The, at this point, the only book club episode we've done, even though we planned and promised to do it more often, where we discussed Tank Abbott's debut novel and... At this point, his only debut novel, though he planned and promised to do more of them, uh, Bar Brawler, which we recorded a, a while ago along with Sir Nigel Longstock. Um, we got an overwhelming, po- overwhelmingly positive response from people for reposting that, except for one person wrote us a crazy email about how sad it made them about Tank Abbott uh, and urged us not to, to discuss him again. So he wrote an entire book. Yeah, that's that is that a, ain't bad. That's an accomplishment. Yeah, and I believe as we return to time and time again uh, during the book club episode, uh, the worst part of Tank Abbott's book, at least my contention, was it was not the writing. 
which I would also say was an accomplishment for Frank Abbott. Yeah. Well, you know what? And we had a lot of suggestions for follow-up book club ideas. And I think one of the things that we settled on was that we would not do a book where we did not think the person whose name was on the book didn't write it. Yes, that's right. We're not going to do any of those autobiographies that were quote-unquote written by Uriah Faber or that lead Ronda Rousey to say that she is quote-unquote an author during her what Metro PCS commercial or whatever it is. Right. We were all – and that was one of the things we felt very confident about in Tank Abbott's book was that that book was written by Tank Abbott. Yes, that is a fact. You can – if you imagine it, you can picture in your mind brain him – hunkered over a table at the dead grunion or whatever the bar in that book is called <laughs> siren I, in hand i assume writing the whole thing out in longhand on a legal pad that's a series what, of legal pads that's actually what he did according to greg savage that sherdog told me that he wrote it all out in legal pads and paid someone to type it up for him. Uh, there's there's no way he could have written it any other way <laughs> like can you imagine tank abbott sitting at a computer typing that up well and see this leads us to what we have decided to do here uh with that criteria in play that we need to feel like this MMA person actually wrote the book themselves. We did a lot of soul searching, uh, a lot of brainstorming, and what we've decided to do for the next edition of the CME Book Club to meet at a date as of yet to be determined is we're all going to read To Light Us, To Guard Us, The Angel War Book 1 by UFC light heavyweight Sean O'Connell. Uh, should we give any backstory? You you recently interviewed Sean O'Connell. I did. He Go, seems like a good dude. He seems like the kind of guy that would benefit from having a bunch of people buy his book on Amazon. Uh, yeah. He gets a fairly substantial cut of the proceeds, which is good for him. That's right. He published it himself. Uh, it's retailing right now for eight fifty nine. The the Kindle price on Amazon. You can just read that bad boy on your phone. Don't even have to have a Kindle. Uh, and... From what he said when I talked to him, he gets about six bucks from every one of these that he sells. And he does seem like a really awesome dude who claims to be working on the second book. And I actually believe him when he says it. Uh, and I've read some of this book so far. Uh, and when I asked him if he would talk to me, and we ended up talking a whole lot about the book. I'll have a story up on MMA Junkie on Tuesday about it. Uh, but one of the things, his conditions for agreeing to the interview was that he wanted me to read the entire book and give him honest feedback. Uh-oh. Does he know about your background? Does he know that when when someone asks for honest feedback from from a student who has a, a master's in fine arts and creative writing that that they might get honest feedback because that's what we give each other? Well, hey man, I've I've read some of this book and I got to say I'm impressed so far. All right. It's the genre-wise not what I would usually read, but for especially for a guy who I asked him if he had any kind of like creative writing training or or anything and he said no, and he does a lot of stuff right. Uh, just early on, and I'm into it, and I'm looking forward to all, us all reading it, discussing it, possibly over a cocktail or two in a special uh, edition of the CME, and I think it doesn't hurt for us to give Sean O'Connell our money, because he seems like a good dude who sat down and wrote a whole damn book by himself, and uh, he deserves it. Yeah, I think it will be fun and exciting for us to do a CME book club uh, for a person who deserves it and for a book that we that we may have positive things to say about. I That's think right. That would, I think that would be good. If everybody who listened to the book club episode, I assume, understands how it works at this point. But basically what happens is we all read the book uh, in our own private homes or wherever. 
And then anyone who has thoughts or questions or comments about the book can email them to the podcast just as you do with a normal uh, email for our listener mail segment. And then at some point we will set a deadline when we will talk about the book, when we will actually record the book club episode, and then we will... uh implement and, and utilize as many of those listener comments as we can. Right? We, might, we might give some people some time to read this one. It clocks in at about 616 pages. Holy cow. Yeah. yeah we better take some time. Yeah. Well, we'll give it a little time. And you know what? As what happened last time, we won't be total jerks about it if you feel like you can't read the entire thing. But I do encourage you to, to download it uh, and, and give this one a shot. I've already been pleasantly surprised. And I got to say, I went back and listened to a little bit of the book club episode that we did on Take Abbott's book, and I forgot how good the listener mail questions were for that. Like some real sharp analysis uh, from our, our listeners on that one. So, yeah, we'll uh, we'll set a date for that in the in the near future. If you have questions or comments about the book book club episode write them and we'll try to answer them for you it's fun we really like everyone to participate and uh buy sean o'connell's book because he it seems like he seems like a good dude so if we could do a good turn for him that would be awesome three rounds as usual this week in the co-main event podcast in round number one max holloway appeared well on his way to an awesome performance on sunday night but then charles Oliveira's pile of trash neck intervened and in round number two michael bisping courageous truth teller or just unrepentant dick discourse and in round number three it wasn't the fight we were expecting but ronda rousey versus holly Holmes seems like something we can all get behind wait you mad bro all that plus are you fucking kidding me just saying stuff and sir nigel longstock is here we're gonna do a little master tweet theater but right now like we always do about this time Let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. First bit of listener mail this week comes to us from Rob L. He writes, Patrick Cote is 4-1 since dropping to welterweight and has looked impressive in every fight, including his unanimous decision loss against Stephen Thompson. He finished Josh Berkman in an impressive fight of the night last night, which is something that even a PED-enhanced Hector Lombard couldn't do against an ill Berkman back at UFC 182. Ill Berkman, bro. Uh, <laughs> who does Mr. Cote face next and what are his title aspiration chances in your opinion? Thank you in advance for your discourse on the matter. Uh, you know what? I, I'm not sure matchmaking is always our strength here at the co-main event podcast. It's uh it's always difficult to do, especially that, you know, now that they have 500 some fighters on the roster over there, but uh, if you want to try to take a stab at a next opponent for Patrick Cote, Ben, you certainly can. I thought though, we could also just discuss his fight with Berkman a little bit uh, because it was, it was awesome. It was awesome. And also kind of a throwback in more ways than one. Like this, it seemed like a fight that could have happened, you know, at sport fight in 2007 at the Mount hood community center or wherever. Uh, and Could have happened on a UFC fight night on Spike TV in like 2008. And it was also a throwback to the days where uh, if you fought in the UFC, we probably knew who you were. Yeah. Un unlike some of the fights we get these days. Uh, here's something that I was thinking about afterwards. Can you tell me when the last time Patrick Cote lost a fight in Canada was? No, I cannot. Do you have the answer? I do. Okay. Well, what is it? 2010. May 8th, 2010, where he got submitted by Alan Belcher at UFC 113. And wow. since then, he has fought a bunch in Canada, uh, more in Canada than outside of Canada uh, in uh, the UFC and in other promotions since then. Um, and he's like the Russian army. 
Like, if you have to, have to go into the home territory to fight him, he's a lot better than if you can get him out of there and get him on, on a different sort of ground and take him on. You don't want to mess with Patrick Cote in Canada. This seemed like one of those rare fights where both guys come out of it looking good. Like, even though Josh Berkman eventually got TKO'd in the third round, uh, he gave as good as he got for most of this thing and had that one, what was that, end of the first round? When he damn near, well, a normal human being would have got their lights turned out and probably yes. would have been in the hospital with post-concussion syndrome for the next right hand. six months. Just nearly decapitated him. And Berkman just shakes it off like it ain't no thing. In fact, and I thought that right at the closing sequence of this fight in the th- beginning of the third round, it seemed to me like when Berkman got knocked down, he was he was actually starting to smile again as if to say, oh, hey, you got me when... Cote followed up with more strikes on the ground that then caused the the fight to end. So it's like, even when he is probably halfway knocked out, Josh Berkman is still enjoying himself. Well, and even right after the stoppage, he kind of popped right back up relatively quickly and gave Patrick Cote a hug. He was like, what is it going to take for this guy? He took just some serious drubbing right there at the end, too. It was one of those situations where you're wondering if the ref is just waiting to see if he's all the way dead before stepping in there and stopping that one. Uh, but also when you step back and realize this is two 35-year-old fighters, 70 pro fights or so, thereabouts between them, just going out there and beating one another senseless in the clearly the best fight of the night. Uh, so Cote now 5-2 and two since his UFC return back in 2012. Uh, he, he's got losses to Kung Lee and Stephen Thompson, as noted. Um, I don't know if he's if he's up there trending around the top 15, but... At this point, does a top 15 opponent make sense for him? Somebody like Jake Ellenberger or, you know, Neil Bagney, who we saw get a win on Sunday as well. Uh, Rick Story, maybe somebody like that. You know, I wouldn't say no necessarily any of those. He, he seemed to have Hector Lombard in mind. I don't know if that's oh, he did a, call out Hector Lombard. a great yeah. idea for Patrick Cote. Also, you mentioned the five and two uh, since returning to the UFC. Yes. All five of those in Canada. So they are. I'm telling you. The, the only two he lost, one was in Vegas, uh, they're or they're both, both in Vegas, Vegas Kung yeah. Lee and Stephen Thompson. I'm just saying, man, if he fights Hector Lombard somewhere like Vegas, I think maybe Patrick Cote gets wrecked. If he can coax Hector Lombard up somewhere, you know, ideally in Quebec, but hey, even if he has to go to Calgary, even if he has to go all the way to Vancouver, still got the edge. Next question this week comes to us from Evan Wilcock. He writes, any thoughts on Sarah Kaufman's current situation? Seems like she'd been asking publicly for a fight almost immediately since her last fight against Davis. Or does it just seem like longer because she was begging for a fight before she got that one? She fought once in 2014 and 2015, despite some good performances. She even holds a win over the number one contender. But what's this? Tate is no longer the challenger and Kaufman's next opponent? Uh, Holly Holm is all this leaves her again without a fight. I would expect the UFC would want to develop the challengers in the women's bantamweight division, given its current state at the top. But alas, Kaufman is ignored. And then it says converse at the end. Okay. We're doing or that. It now. says converse <laughs> either way. Let's go with that. Um, yeah, kind of a rough road, huh? For Sarah Kaufman so far, uh, almost in her entire UFC career. And, she is one of those people who at this point is not shy about getting on the social media and asking for fights. I like that and about her. I do like that about her. And also we should note Sarah Kaufman, uh, another person who seems like a legitimately 
good person and the kind of person that you want to see good things happen for. And I'm a little bit underwhelmed with the matchmaking in the UFC who seem to never kind of respond to her, uh, her call outs, even though the UFC as a, a, uh, an entity professes that it likes people that quote unquote step up. Yeah, that's true. Cause you would think that she's given you a lot to work with there. She basically, after this, this most recent situation, Said, just named off a bunch of people who she would fight, and you could kind of see her selling that fight against any of those people. And you're right. It doesn't seem like she's getting a whole lot of support there. Uh, and I don't know. You, you'd think that in that division, especially where you're trying not to have it be the Ronda Rousey show and everybody else, where you, you would like to have a little bit of interesting action going on outside of just the title fights at, at women's bantamweight, you'd think that they would embrace that a little bit. I, I don't know. I don't know what's up. I don't know if the UFC just feels like maybe uh, they don't want to be in the Sarah Kaufman business or what. But I think Sarah Kaufman's uh, a lot of fun to have around, and I appreciate her candor, you might say. Yeah, I do too. I think, I guess, should, the UFC might look at her as two and three in her last five since she officially lost that uh, split decision by to Jessica I at UFC 166, which later got overturned when I tested positive for marijuana. Um, she's Sarah Kaufman's coming off a loss also to Alexis Davis. So she's had some ups and downs since the UFC bought her away from strike force. And of course her last, uh, strike force fight was against Ronda Rousey. Um, I guess she had a pit stop there in Invicta. So, uh, maybe she, maybe there was some managerial wranglings in between. Uh, but at this point she's in the UFC, uh, I wouldn't mind seeing her fight somebody like Sarah McMahon, who's also coming off loss or, or, uh, I would also say Betch Kohea might make sense for Sarah Kaufman, who's also coming off a loss, although I have kind of a sick feeling in my stomach about something that could happen to Betch Kohea soon that we'll talk about later in listener mail. Oh, no. But uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't argue with either of those yeah. as fights for her. Would watch. Basically, every possible opponent that she named when she was going on her call-out spree, hashtag would watch. All right, so let's do this one since I teased it. This is a question from Mike Sullivan. So does the Rousey home signing open the door for Misha Tate versus Cyborg Justino, possibly on the same card to Cyborg, so Cyborg and Ronda can stare down at the end of the night, discuss this shit, shit in all caps with an exclamation point at of, the end. Of course. So I put some special emphasis on it there. People keep bringing this up, uh, Misha Tate against Cyborg Justino. Uh, even though it seems like Amanda Nunes is now angling for a shot at Misha Tate. Um, and I think from a fan perspective, Misha Tate against Cyborg is, would be awesome. And it would be a good way for the UFC to make sure that Cyborg can reliably get down to 135 before you go ahead and book her a title fight against Ronda Rousey at UFC 200 next July. Uh, on the moon, right? Yes. They're doing that one at the moon base yeah. that we will all have built because of the melting of the polar ice caps. Fighting on the moon, bitch. Vegas will be flooded. It's going to so be awesome. You can't do it at the MGM Grand Garden Arena no. anymore. And uh, I think there's going to be a concert there that night. So here's, here's, so wait, maybe they'll do it at Cowboy Stadium. Right. Do you think? Oh, well, which will be moved to the moon. That'll be on the moon. Uh, here's the problem with Misha Tate versus Cyborg Justino. Millions of dollars, <laughs> which you risk by putting Cyborg out there with Misha Tate, who I don't know if you've noticed, but Misha Tate just keeps damn beating everybody. She does find a way to win over and over again. So uh, what I was thinking in my mind brain, even though this would be cruel and sickening matchmaking, <laughs> Cyborg Justino against Betch Cohea. What do you think about that? I think that's a great way to get Betch Cohea straight up murdered. Jeff. Yes. And to get Cyborg Justino down to 135, give her a fight, which she will obviously win. And give her that UFC victory that gets her on a road. She just beat the number one contender, dude. 
The yeah. former number one contender, she starched her in one round. Man, I would hope that Betch Cohea has someone who cares about her looking out for her who would just not allow that to happen, right? Because, man, that's that'd just be horrible. You know what that reminds me of is remember back when uh, in Dream, the Japanese promotion Dream, when they held a like online vote to kind of determine um, matches in uh, a Grand Prix that they were doing? And people voted to put Sakuraba, uh, who even by then was pretty broke down in like 2008 against Melvin Manhoff. And it was just like, why? Why would you do that? What are you trying to do, you sick bastards? I mean, I, you know I'm going to have to watch it and I'm just going to feel terrible the entire time. That's what Cyborg Justino versus Betchkohea feels like to me for different reasons. But still, just a, a train wreck. You're telling me we're gonna we're gonna drive this this old Ford Escort onto the train tracks. We're all gonna move out of the way, and we're just gonna enjoy the carnage. As as the I'm not going to put the word enjoy anywhere near it. I'm just (laughs) saying, if you follow this line of reasoning that Mike Sullivan brings up in his in his question, that I saw a lot of people bringing up on social media that it would be a good idea to have Cyborg come into the UFC and fight at women's bantamweight to get a victory and to, to set up this eventual confrontation with Rousey, like Misha Tate kind of a risky thing. Like, and if Cyborg loses that dude, you just lost a shit pile of money. Okay. But then like the UFC had been talking about Misha Tate versus Ronda Rousey three. Right. And the problem, everybody was like, well, we've seen it. We feel like we know exactly how this one is going to go. If Misha Tate, Went out there and beat Cyborg? Hell yeah, I'll watch her go another round with uh, Ronda Rousey. Yeah, I I would too, but I think you're also, you're still losing a lot of money. Okay, fine. I mean, Dana White put some ridiculous estimate on how many fight or pay-per-view buys a fight between Cyborg and and Ronda would sell. I think he said like two and a half million or something, or two million, which would make it the most uh, popular fight in UFC history by like half. (laughs) But like, even if it did half of what he said it was going to get... You would still make an unbelievable garbage barge full of money off that fight, which you wouldn't make with Misha Tate. You just how, wouldn't get there. How much money do you think you'd lose in the fallout after Betch Cohea was killed in the octagon? How much money do you think that would end up costing down the road? Look, man, I'm not here, <laughs> I'm not here to do crisis management on this. Or, or, Clearly. You're here to do crisis creation. I'm just saying, when I thought about it, I thought, God damn it, that makes too much sense. <laughs> I hope that they don't do that. Because she couldn't hurt her. Betch Cohea couldn't hurt Cyborg, and yet she would go out there and give her the exact fight that Cyborg wants. And make mean faces the entire time. Yeah, she would do that thing where she jumps up and down before the fight starts, and everyone watching at home thinks, yeah, you're not winning this. <laughs> All right. What else we got here? Let's do one more. This one's from Jason Kellner. He writes, after all the hubbub with Pettis and the Stockton Strangler, Nathan Donald Diaz, Nermi draws Tony Ferguson in a non-main event fight. Are you fucking kidding me in all caps? What is the UFC thinking? Why not capitalize on the hype, draw, and bad blood between the Dagestani knuckle game cartel and the 209? Or even Showtime. Is the UFC trying to build hype before Diaz or, or, or is the UFC trying to rebuild hype before Diaz or Pettis? Discuss. This matchmaking did surprise me a little bit. Uh, Habib Nurmagomedov against Tony Ferguson. Uh, although it does seem like an awesome fight. Yeah, if you want me to get pure, mad about seeing this fight, I'm not going to do it. From a pure action standpoint, it's, it seems awesome. Uh, and, you know, it, it crosses my mind that 
you you half want to give Nurmi kind of a comeback fight since he's been out for so long, and at the same time give him a stiff test and give Tony Ferguson, who's looked awesome in his last several appearances, the chance to finally break through and become a top contender. I think that this uh, this does both of those things. But I would also say that I understand that Nathan Donald Diaz would also make what you might consider to be a fairly safe matchup for Nurmagomedov and would be a more high-profile matchup. Uh, I just don't know what's going on with, with the Stockton Strangler right now in his UFC negotiations. Yeah, and that's the thing when I read this question about you know what is what is the matchmaking thinking here. Uh, there could be some moving parts there behind the scenes that prevented uh, that what would seem to be the the uh, reasonable, rational fight to make between one of the Diaz bros and Nermi. That, there might be some good reasons why that one can't happen. But also, you know, what would mean more to you for Nermi's ascension, like if we're thinking about him and where he sits in the rankings and where he might fight for a lightweight title, a win over Tony Ferguson, who is on a six-fight win streak, or a win over Nathan Donald Diaz, who creates a lot of excitement prior to the bell, That's right. uh, as, as Jim Ross would say. It just seems like people are sleeping on El Kakui, Tony Ferguson, a little bit. And that's why this seems like an un- underwhelming matchup. But it's really not. Like, he's ranked ninth in the in the official rankings. He's on that win streak, with you, which you mentioned. Plus, you know that he's going to get that upcoming fight bump, where you just move up a couple spots in the rankings. Right, for right. For no reason. Well... Remember when we were talking, though, recently about Tony Ferguson, how good he has looked, but also how one of the things that makes him so fun to watch is his willingness to just try shit and go for stuff and how that could totally backfire against a good wrestler, especially if it's a non-main event three-round fight where you don't have as many rounds to work with and you could just maybe kind of get held down for two of the three rounds and boom, you lose and there goes your win streak. Nurmi seems like exactly the kind of guy who can do that to you if you're Tony Ferguson here. Well, that's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question, comment, or concern to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to get a hold of us. You can go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That will get you in touch with us. While you're there, you can sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. Uh, That comes out every Friday morning to catch us up on the news and notes that we miss from Tuesday through Thursday when we're not recording the podcast. It's free. It's risk-free. You can sign up, get a couple issues of it. If you don't like it, you can unsubscribe. And that's about that's about all there is to it. Well, and it was recommended to me on Twitter recently that maybe we take that, that UFC bingo card uh, that I whipped up during a recent uh, UFC event and put it out there for Breakfast of Champions. Oh, you made that? Yeah. You created that? I created oh, that. I thought you stole that from someone. How dare you? Yeah, we should totally put that in the Breakfast yeah. of Champions. Yeah, so uh, if you hurry up and sign up, you can get your own bingo card. How do you like that? As for right now, though, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Ben, for the first minute and 30 seconds of the main event of UFC Fight Night 74, it looks like Max Holloway would eventually put a hurtin' on Charles Oliveira. Uh, but then it happened in, in a sudden and strange way uh, where we had to, to, to come up with a TKO by essentially 
uh, injury, which I'm as I'm looking now on uh, Wikipedia, even looks gross that it says esophagus injury. Torn esophagus. Uh, you don't want that. Charles Oliveira comes up lame after uh, trying to pull guard, right? Didn't he try to pull guard? And then, and then uh, Max Holloway kind of squirmed out of it, and it seemed like... Uh, uh, he was trying for a takedown, and Max Holloway kind of used the underhook to leverage him up against the fence. And then when he got up, he seemed to realize, uh-oh, something's wrong here. Yeah. And then did the chill dog, basically. The injury chill dog. Right. Uh, and... You know, Max Holloway followed up, well, I guess was kind enough to hit him in the body instead of just going right after and attacking the man's head. Yeah. Um, it looked at first like Charles Oliveira was kind of grabbing his shoulder in the collarbone area, but then it seemed like it turned into a little bit of a scarier situation where they had to bring the neck brace and take Charles Oliveira out on a stretcher to the hospital. And now his, uh, his injury is being described as a micro tear of the esophagus, which, I mean, that's just one of those things that just creeps me out. That's just a gross sounding injury. Yeah. And the esophagus is the kind of thing that will that you don't think about very very much, but it will kill you if something <laughs> goes wrong with it. Okay. Cuz you need it. You do. To eat and to breathe. Good points. Very so, valid points you're making here about the, the esophagus. One of the worst things that can happen is you can have an esophagus malfunction. Yeah. You get esophagus cancer, for instance. Trouble. You're done. Bad news. Yeah. Yeah. You need that thing to eat. And yeah. breathe. Well, you know what I thought was weird, and I guess you can kind of say you're caught up in the moment, but we're we're a minute 39 in here, and Charles Oliveira gets hurt, and Max Holloway's response when he realizes he has one is to jump up on the cage and celebrate. And I think we've think, talked about I think this has happened before, and I think we've talked about it before on the show. Uh, it might even have been when Weidman beat Anderson Silva when he broke oh, okay. his leg. Yeah. Uh, because we know you're excited, guy. <laughs> you know, like you just got a big win if you're Max Holloway. Uh, it might be one of those situations where I would advise that you act like you've been there before. But I can't speak to the man's emotions. I don't know what's happening inside Max Holloway. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure you're you put in all the work for the camp. You realize you won. Your pay just doubled right before your eyes. You're excited. Although it is one of those, it's a bummer for everybody. I mean, especially for Charles Oliveira, whose damn esophagus is hurting from what we understand. It's just creepy. Don't even like to think about it. It's also one of those fights where Max Holloway, who had kind of gotten pumped up pretty big before this fight, and he doesn't really get a chance to show off that he can do anything. Right. don't, like, what do you do with him after this fight? It's, you know, they talked about maybe a Frankie Edgar fight or something, but you can't really say that he moves up as a result of this. He didn't get the chance to. No, and this was kind of like a uh, uh, an MMA God's outcome in a way here because even though Max Holloway won, the UFC had really kind of gone out of its way to make this sort of a showcase event for him. It had numerous uh, vignettes about him during the broadcast where it showed Max Holloway jogging through his neighborhood, getting his dude daps from all his neighbors. It showed him talking to school children about uh, how awesome it is to be a UFC fighter. It showed him out there uh, surfing and, you know, that we had pumped the kid up as, as maybe the, the next big thing in the, in the featherweight division. And then he, he's forced to have this somewhat underwhelming victory over Charles Oliveira. just seems like that's the way stuff happens when you go out of your way to try to make a guy uh, into a star. Although, you know, you can't really like take anything away from Max Holloway at this point. The guy's got seven wins in a row now in the UFC. Uh, and he is 23 years old. It seems like, uh, not only has he improved leaps and bounds since he lost those back-to-back fights to Dennis Bermudez and Conor McGregor. And the Dennis Bermudez one was kind of a disputed split decision that happened way back at UFC 160, but it just seems like he's gotten so much better. 
uh, in the ensuing two years or so, uh, that he seems like a guy who could have a really bright future in this division, especially when you consider how young he is uh, and that how much he's improved. It just kind, of, just kind of seems like he is a guy where the sky's the limit in a way. Yeah. You know, what I keep wondering is how, in retrospect, seeing how both guys' careers have gone, how different you view that Conor McGregor-Max Holloway fight from way back in August of 2013, where we were but ignorant children compared to what we know now. Because, you know, Max Holloway seemed like a guy who is relatively inexperienced, kind of around. That that, that fight was not necessarily spectacular. Conor McGregor, I believe, suffered a knee injury during that fight, uh, if I remember correctly, won the decision. Um, and then later, seeing what Max Holloway did, you started to think, maybe that's Conor McGregor's most significant win uh, up until he beat Chad Mendez. Uh, and then, you know, kind of vice versa, you see what Conor McGregor has done finishing uh, everybody else, and then you think and see what Max Holloway did after that to kind of prove himself, and you think, maybe these guys are going to come around again, and it's going to be a whole hell of a lot of fun. Yeah, I wouldn't argue with that at all, especially since, you know, Max Holloway has six stoppages in, in those seven wins that he's put put together, and he's, he looks better and better all the time. Um, and he uh, will fuck up your esophagus. Yes, he will. I, I wouldn't argue with that, that match at all. And, you know, this... This isn't obviously the worst thing that could happen to Max Holloway because he does come out with a, with a win. And even if he did look really, really impressive in doing something to Charles Oliveira, you were still going to have the situation where uh, the featherweight title is going to be on lockdown until December, we think. Knock on wood, as long as nobody gets injured before Conor McGregor and Jose Aldo can finally get together and settle their protracted blood feud. Uh, you think you've got Frankie Edgar waiting in the wings, possibly as the next guy up, although Max Holloway called him out at the post-fight press conference, and Frankie Edgar took off his reading spectacles yeah. to let it know that he would be down. Um, so you Took know, his pipe and knocked the ash into his slippers and <laughs> gave, a, gave a, a short nod of approval. So even if this was a situation where Max Holloway goes out there and gets performance of the night or whatever, he's still going to have to wait a while before the championship carousel has an opening for him. So... Um, even though it made for an anticlimactic end to a six-fight main card or whatever it was, uh, you know, we we still got lots of options with Max Holloway. He's he's still going to have to do something else before he gets that title shot. What I want to know is, you mentioned it was a very anticlimactic ending to the event. Uh, can we go ahead and dub this the Saskatoon curse? If you fight in the main event in Saskatoon, brother, look out. Yeah, the title does not change hands in Saskatoon. That's, that's what the old, in the business, that's yeah, what they say. Yeah. Because of some bad luck that happened years ago. And, and, and evil from ancient times taking place there in Saskatoon. Do we know, uh, uh, like, an American analog to Saskatoon? No, we would have to ask our Canadian listeners. I know Winnipeg is supposed to be Detroit, and from what I witnessed in Winnipeg, that seems accurate. Okay, so hey, if you're listening to this in the greater Saskatoon or even Canada area right to the co-main event podcast and make a comparison that your dumb American centric hosts will understand. What is Saskatoon? Saskatoon is to Canada as blank is to the United States. There you go. Make it like an SAT question yeah. for everyone. All right, Ben, well, let's do, are you fucking kidding me? And then we will move on to round number two uh, for this week. What is your, are you fucking kidding me this week? Well, Chad, I know you saw, and then probably immediately forgot that you saw the fight between Olivia 
Olivier Albon Mercier and Tony Sims. I did see it and I did immediately forget it. And when I said that Patrick Cote and Josh Berkman was a throwback to when we knew who all these people were, that's the one I was thinking of. This is a main card fight and uh, Albon Mercier wins the decision here. And according to fight metric, he lands a total of 76 out of 95 strikes, which, hey, that ain't bad. Six of 10 on the takedowns, Uh, but significant strikes Three of eight, which makes me wonder how we're scoring those significant strikes and if we're purposely just being a dick to Olivia Albon Mercier. If not, are you fucking kidding me? Three significant strikes in your three-round decision victory? Do you think that Olivier Albon Mercier showed up at a UFC party and like gave handed his jacket to one of the fight metric guys? Thought he was like... Thought he, thought he was working at the coat check. Was like, hey, man, hang this up for me. I think it would be more awesome if... Olivia Albon Mercier is sitting around with his buddies and they're like, how few significant strikes do you think you could throw and still win a fight in the USC? See, yeah, and I agreed with you that the the real the real spellbinder of a stat here is not the three significant strikes landed, but the eight significant strikes thrown. <laughs> right. Because <laughs> that's impressive. Yeah. And how do you how do you quantify a missed significant strike? I just, it just it looked like it was going pretty fast. I hope at the very least one of Olivia Albon Mercier's buddies has to shave his eyebrows off now. <laughs> well, Ben, it probably wasn't supposed to be Francisco Trinaldo's night on Sunday at UFC Fight Night 74. The guy came into his bout with a 29-year-old undefeated tough winner, Chad Laparice. Laparisi? How do you say that? Laprice? Laprice? Laprice. Sure. See. Okay. Uh, anyway, Trinaldo was something close to a two to one underdog. Uh, and it was also the day before his 37th birthday, which kind of makes it seem like maybe he wasn't the guy who was supposed to win. Okay. But sometimes, man, when you go out there with the game plan that you're just going to keep winging those huge overhand punches, no matter what, it ends up paying off for you. Trinaldo, whose nickname, by the way, is Masaranduba, which translates to it's funny. You should ask, sir, because I did some research. Okay. It is both a place in brazil and it is a kind of wood that people use to build their decks okay so nice. there you go he ends up winning by first round tko and then he jumps on the mic to tell the people that he was too poor to ever have a birthday party when he was a kid and he asks his mother to throw him a party the next day and quote give the children of brazil whatever they want Wow, there's yes. got to be a lot of children in Brazil. Number one, I don't know exactly how much money Trinaldo thought he was going to get paid for this, but are you fucking kidding me, man? That was awesome. One of the few legitimately touching moments in this sport. And so, f- until further notice, I'm going to become the webmaster of masaranduba.org. <laughs> are you well, fucking kidding me? You better have a series of links out there because no one is typing that one well, it'll just be in everyone's memory thing in their, They'll on their browser. Yeah, yeah, sure. Sure they will. Make you it just have to type page. the M and it'll pop up the rest of it because you <laughs> yes. go there so often yeah. to see, what's, see what Francisco Trinaldo got for his birthday. Right. And which one of those little kids had to be the asshole who showed up first and asked for a pony so nobody else could get anything? <laughs> That's, that kid would be the Ben Folks of Brazil, right? <laughs> anyway, that's going to do it uh, for round number one. We will be right back with round number two.
Michael Chad on the prelims of UFC Fight Night 74. 26 year old Frankie Perez goes out there, knocks out Sam Stout in the first minute of the fight, then tells John Anik on the mic that uh, this has kind of been a dream come true. That's his first UFC win in two tries. He did it against Sam Stout, who he'd always looked up to. And now that's it. He's calling it quits. He's retiring now, going to go on and do other stuff. He's tired of what uh, MMA has done to his body. He's been at it since he was 19. And now he wants to go live a different kind of life. This is always interesting to me. When a a fighter who is not really being forced out of the sport in any way, not somebody we're calling for to retire, not somebody who's lost a series of fights or just gotten too old, a young guy who just won a fight, uh, you'd think this is when everybody else in the UFC starts to tell you how the sky's the limit for them. They're going to be champs any day now. And this is the guy saying, that's it for me. I'm done. And a part of me, maybe just because of my position as a media person who's close enough to this sport without actually being technically in it. So I, I have this perspective on it where I always feel like, good. Get out while you can, man. Get out while you can, and and before you have any damage pile up on you, which always makes me then feel weird, because what am I saying there, that people just shouldn't do this sport that I love? It's weird. Yeah, and not the guy we expected to retire after this fight. Uh, that's true. Sam Stout comes in, now he's lost his last three and four of his last five. Uh, last three have all been some version of, of knockouts, two of them in the first round, one of them really early in the second round. So if anybody was going to call it quits here, we thought it was going to be uh, the 31-year-old veteran, Sam Stout. Uh, but I agree with you. Like, I have the same feeling when a guy like like Frankie Perez, still pretty young in the sport, only 10-2. and two. Uh, he's only got amateur fights, you know, starting back in 2010. So he's been in, he's been around, you know, f- five or so years. Uh, mixed feelings when a guy like that decides to walk away because, uh, there is a little bit of the, the bittersweet questions about what he could have done and what he could have accomplished. But at the same time, man, maybe this is just a guy who has other interests or, uh, you know, has other avenues through which he could make a living and, and runs a pretty good chance of making a better living, frankly, frankly, as a guy who's fighting on the prelims uh, in MMA's most competitive division. He lost his UFC debut, right, uh, I believe, to Johnny Case. He did. Uh, and so he gets this win over Sam Stout, gets the chance to go out on his own terms. Uh, I guess I can't find anything to be critical about over this decision, but I know that there was one guy who could. Yeah. Uh, a, a bizarre move here by, uh, commentator Michael Bisping. They throw it back to the Fox Sports studio. Uh, Michael Bisping there with Dominic Cruz and Karen Bryant. Bisping remarks, I'm glad. And no offense to Frankie Perez, cause I don't know the guy, but if he retired after knocking someone out on his second UFC win, it's actually his second UFC fight, first UFC win, I would say he hasn't got the cojones to really be in this sport. It's a tough sport. He said he's sick of what it does to his body. He's sick of feeling like this. Well, guess what? This sport isn't designed for everybody. And if you didn't enjoy it, yeah, step away. Step away and let the real men do it. Let the real men do it, says Michael the Kennel Bisping. I just don't know what's going on in Michael Bisping's head when he does this. It's weird because of the last conversation we had on this show about Michael Bisping, we were talking about how, uh, or I was talking about how he had kind of like begrudgingly earned my favor through his long career now as a veteran UFC fighter. When he first came around, I didn't really like him. And now that he's kind of at the tail end of things, I respect the guy. And and, and I kind of cheer for him when he goes out there because I want to see good things happen for him. And I've I've come around to, like, view him as, as you know, more of a smart, 
uh, self promoter than necessarily a heelish figure, like a bad guy in the, in the sport. And then he says something like this and I have to reconsider my position because I'm like, Oh man, maybe he really is just a dick. Uh, but thank God Dominic Cruz was there, right? To continue being the, uh, one of the more level headed and, and professional and high quality broadcasters employed over there on, on the UFC on Fox to, uh, kind of give us a different perspective. Yeah, Dominic Cruz, the voice of reason chimes in saying, I don't know when to call for someone to quit. Nobody has that right. Sometimes it takes more cojones to stop yourself than to keep going. And that's something Michael Bisping can learn about from Perez. And Dom- which is a telling comment there too, especially because you're looking at 36 year old Michael Bisping sitting there next to him. Uh, his eye, uh, still showing the, the effects of that detached retina he suffered a couple of years ago. And you realize, that's right, maybe your, uh, your enthusiasm for cojones and stuff in this sport can mess around and get you hurt when it doesn't need to, especially because Michael Bisping has been one of those guys we've talked about as for a guy who never fought for a title or has yet to fight for a title in the UFC has been pretty financially successful. And, to, to adopt that attitude of, hey, step away and let, let us real men do it makes you think maybe Michael Bisping is going to be one of those dudes who has to get dragged away from the sport. And interesting comments from Dominic Cruz, who also, uh, as everyone knows, has experienced a lot of adversity in his own career and has probably had to make that decision a time or two of whether or not he wants to go through what the sport does to his body and to continue to continue to come back and rehab from knee injury after knee injury and still, you know, wonder if you can do it at the sports highest level. And he's obviously up to this point made the choice to, to continue on. But, uh, you know, maybe it's just a sign that he understands where Frankie Perez is coming from, uh, in that decision making process and is taking, as you said, a, a little bit more of a level headed view of it. Uh, now, I guess there's there's more than one way to look at this Bisping thing, though, because I saw some people responding online, and certainly we've been critical of Fox Sports for being, as we say, state-run TV and kind of, uh, uh, you know, given the, given the softball treatment to the UFC as broadcast partners and employing a lot of active UFC fighters. And certainly when Karen Bryant kicked it over to Michael Bisping, I don't think that this was the response that she anticipated to her question about Frankie Perez's retirement. Uh, but... I saw some reaction on Twitter of people saying, if you want, you know, people complain that all they do is, is, is softball coverage on Fox. And then this guy comes out and says what he really thinks and people continue to rip him. Uh, and so I think that that is a quasi valid thing to say or quasi valid view to have of this exchange. Although, and I think it was new bleacher report hire, uh, Sidney Jones who said this on Twitter, but, uh, it's not like your only two choices are to do PR or be a dick. Right. You can find a, a happy medium in there somewhere. Yeah. Well, you'd like to think you could. Uh, but, you know, if you told me Bisping was one of those guys who's just kind of all the way cranked up in whatever direction he's going, I, I can believe that. Uh, you know, I thought about when I heard uh, Frankie Perez's comments afterwards, our, our own Mike Bond was on the scene there. And we have a video on uh, MMA Junkie where he talks about how I think he makes the, the remark, nobody's going to stop me from being happy. And that that's one of the things he felt like why he was stepping away from MMA was to go be happy somewhere. Uh, and it made me think of uh, a story we had on Dustin Hazlett. Did you see that, that uh, Trent Reinsmith did uh, about Dustin Hazlett, who's an EMT now? You remember Dustin Hazlett? Yeah, for sure. Uh, and he was saying that one of the things that told him his fighting career needed to be over was that he felt 
basically too happy to continue to be a fighter, did not have that that fire in the belly that springs from some sort of a desire for something that you don't have or a, a hunger to go out and prove yourself uh, with this chip on your shoulder, improve yourself to the world. He didn't have that anymore. He'd kind of worked through that. It's the same thing uh, Julie Kedzie said when she retired, that she felt like she had kind of worked through her issues. Uh, and it says something weird about MMA and about fight sports that when that happens, you know, that's how you know you're done is because you become too happy to continue doing this anymore, uh, which kind of makes sense. It also made me think, did you see this? I tweeted this thing out, but uh, in the New York Times, they have a or just had yesterday, I believe, uh, a story about Riddick Bowe. Former boxing heavyweight champion Riddick Bo, um, who now has a, sells rotisserie chickens in Harlem. And a interesting quote, and I think you could say this about a lot of fighters in there from, a sports columnist from the, for the Boston Herald, Ron Borges, who said, Bo had a curse, and that was that he had no second dream. When he won the title, he had nothing else he wanted to do. He wanted to be heavyweight champion, and he got it. And I think you see that with a lot of fighters, especially some of the really successful, really driven fighters, is they have this one thing, this one thing they want to do that, as we all know, you can't do for that long, even when you're really, really good at it. And so then, you know, what fills that void in your life once that's over and how, how do you live a life when that is just that, that one thing for you is being a great fighter? Uh, it's tough. It's one of the, the weird aspects of this sport, I think. Yeah. And you know, mixed martial arts is still in kind of a situation where, People come to it for different reasons. They pursue it for for different personal reasons. And it could be that Frankie Perez never imagined himself as champion, never imagined himself making a, like his life's work out of fighting, which I think is probably a positive decision to make. He maybe never imagined himself, you know, making a, a nest egg for himself and, and his family uh, through fighting. And if he has other interests and other stuff that he wants to do and, and you know, the guys and, and women in this sport aren't getting paid enough that they would – financially set themselves up and set their families up for life. So uh, more power to him as far as I'm concerned, getting out of here. And and frankly, if a guy is going to say he's going to walk away because he wants to be happy and he doesn't like this, what can you even say, man, besides a good decision? Like, <laughs> I, su- I support you, man. Like, yes. Positive life choice. Godspeed. Yeah. Anyway, that's going to do it for round number two. Sir Nigel Longstock's here. We're going to do a rendition of Master Tweet Theater, which we haven't done in a couple of weeks. That starts right now. It's that time again. We welcome back to the show friend of the podcast and noted theatricalist, Sir Nigel Longstock. Sir Nigel, how are you? Good day to you, sir. I am fit as a fiddle. Uh, I would... I've seen some fiddles that were in pretty bad shape. I'm just going to tell you that right now. Yes, it's one of those European fiddles. It's worth a lot of money. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Uh... I'm going to go ahead and ask you right now, is there a theme for this week's Master Tweet Theater? Yes, sir, there is. The theme is for your information. Okay. FYI, the kids abbreviate it. I, I feel like you actually have a good chance with this one. LOL. I can't wait for you to disappoint me. Ah, BRB. <clears throat> First of all, before we get you know anything else out of the way, let's pay some bills. This episode of Master Tweet Theater, starring Sir Nigel Longstock, is brought to you by the Bao Jin Corporation, makers of Seldom Break Condoms. Seldom break. When you're about to have sex and nothing else is available, nothing else will do. You know he's been thinking of this for, like, two weeks. That's the sad thing. It brings a real light to his life. 
And that's why we allow it. There's so little else going on there. I owe my career to the Baojin Corporation and seldom break condoms. In certain situations, a deadbeat dad can get child support if his income sinks low enough. <laughs> Tweet the first. The difference between legless lizard and snake, legless lizards have eyelids and ear holes, a detachable tail, and cannot unlock their jaw. Okay, so we have ourselves a reptile enthusiast. Who, who, who do you know on Twitter, Chad, who loves them some uh, lizards and shit? Well, I don't think War Machine is tweeting anymore from the sneezer, right? <laughs> he did. He was big into snakes. Yeah. yeah. Um, I don't know. I, 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 Christy Mack, does she still count as a member of the mixed martial arts community? Maybe. Uh, really not deviating too far. You like that's the only person you could think of who might be into reptiles. Well, who do you know? I'm going to say Matt Mitrione. Hmm, both fine guesses, both real herpetologists, and both wrong. It is Matt Horwich. What? Good old Matt Horwich tweeting about the difference between okay. certain lizards. I'm just going to go ahead and, and put forth that Christy Mack was less of a stretch than if I would have said Matt Horwich. <laughs> if you just said Matt Horwich, I would have slapped you in the mouth. Are we sure that's a verified Matt Horwich account? Well, mm, I accidentally responded to his tweet instead of the tweet of the person who sent it. And I said, thank you, sir. And Matt Horowitz responded, I know, right? With several more facts about lizards. So I assume it's him. All right. I mean, I remember Matt Horowitz from the IFL days. And it's just, that doesn't square with what I remember. But okay, I'll take your word. An earnest young man into lizards. <clears throat> Tweet the second. I try not a judgmental person, but some people are real scum of earth. I believe what you do on this earth, you pay for here. Hashtag my thoughts. I think I remember seeing this one. Is that Jessica I? I'm going to say Jessica I. That does sound like Jessica I, uh, mostly because it appears to be written as if English was her second language. Uh, I'm going to go with someone who's, who English is their second language and just say Vanderlei Silva, just for variety's sake. Way too coherent for Vanderlei Silva. Way too. It is Jessica Evil Eye expressing, I would say, Vanderlei Silva's sense of justice. <laughs> what you do on Earth, you pay for. On Earth. Possibly within the next five minutes, once they get their hands on you. Exactly. Everything Vanderlei ever did, he paid for immediately. <laughs> <clears throat> Tweet the third. It's so sad to see what Tap Out has become. I remember back in the day being proud to represent a brand that stood for something real. Saw that one, too. That's Dan Hardy. That one's taken just from today, I believe. Sir Nigel's getting a little lazy on Just us. a cram session? Try to get enough tweets? Short notice gig. Well, if you know, then I guess I will abstain from guessing. You don't even... Maybe I'm wrong. I will save my ask the audience for later. <laughs> it is, in fact, Dan Hardy, who apparently once genuinely believed in the tap-out brand. Well, I think it's probably easier to believe in the tap-out brand when they are paying you money. Absolutely. Now, so many people replied to this saying that they no longer wore it because it was available at a British sporting goods store I had never heard of. Sports Direct, I believe it's called. And that's why they don't wear it. Yes, exactly. Okay. It used to be a fashionable, you know, only the best people wore tap-out. I see. I now see. it's Cockneys and... I don't know. What are the castes in British society? Isn't your accent supposed to be vaguely British? Oh, no. It's Midwestern, sir. You've got sir in your name. Beef eaters. Are they above cockneys This now? is falling apart. <clears throat> Tweet the four. Making a sandwich is just like cheese. It makes it taste that much better. 
One more time, please. Making a sandwich is just like cheese. It makes it taste that much better. Chad, what do you got here? How is this for your information? What is, how does that make any sense? <laughs> it, it presents itself as information, sir. It is a declarative statement. All right. See, I'm going to go Matt Mitrione here. All right. That's, not, that's actually not bad. I'm going to go Donald Cerrone. Just desperation. Okay. Just throwing up at a, a half-court shot. Both fine guesses, both prone to eat a sandwich, and both wrong. It's Roy Nelson. Okay. Now, see, I feel like I would have been stereotyping Roy Nelson if I had tried to guess him here, and yet it would have been right. Hmm. Hmm. He's not heavy. He's my brother. <laughs> Tweet the fifth. I had to slap this guy. Frowny face. Well, I mean, that's got to be the poet Philip Baroni, doesn't it? It does seem like the words of the poet. It resembles him, but it is Nick oh. Diaz. Oh. A rare tweet from Nick Diaz, not rarely about slapping a person. Well, I feel like Nick Diaz, if he gets a couple more tweets in Master Tweet Theater, is going to have to get some kind of poet-type moniker if he keeps up this does stuff. He, does Nick Diaz tweet enough? To appear on Master Tweet Theater? <laughs> no, he no. does not. <laughs> it's, it's something for him to shoot for. That was, a, that was a swerve, though, there at the end. Well, give Sir Nigel a little bit of credit. He used an emoji, I might add. Oh, well, you didn't tell us that. It's a Japanese name meaning Emily. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, I guess that does it for Master Tweet Theater. Sir Nigel, what do you got going on? You know, it's funny you should ask, sir. I've just finished work on an exciting project about an aging minor league ball player who regains his competitive spirit after he meets Susan Sarandon and nearly beats her to death. I see, and what is this disturbing work called? It's called Raging Bull Durham. <laughs> And what role do you play? I play Susan Sarandon's stunt double, sir. <laughs> well, that was Master Tweet Theater, and that was Sir Nigel Longstock. Thank you, sir. Ben, I have to admit that after attending the opening night of our local independent music festival here on Thursday night in Missoula, I was a little bit hungover when I woke up on Friday morning. Oh, no. And therefore was both surprised and uh, queasy to find that we've started announcing fights real early on Friday mornings now, <laughs> where they have Ronda Rousey go on Good Morning America, I believe, and announce that... Her next fight isn't the one that we all anticipated. She's not going to have a third fight with Misha Tate, at least not yet. She's going to face uh, Greg Jackson, Mike Winklejohn product, and former female boxing champion Holly Holm uh, coming up on January 2nd. Um, and that, you know, obviously took a lot of people by surprise. Uh, what, what was your initial reaction? I assume, you know, you were not hungover. You were probably snoozing in that hammock, uh, taking in the news via your phone. You know, uh my, I was surprised mainly because the UFC had already spelled it out that it was going to be Rousey, Misha Tate. Right. And that, and I think we'll do, we can discuss that a little bit more, but that seems to be like one of the problems here. Right? Yeah. Well, it also seems like one of those situations where MMA fans, we complain about something, the UFC kind of bends to the pressure and you start to think, 
I don't know if it's a great idea to tell MMA fans. <laughs> like on one hand, good for you, I guess, for being responsive to the fans' uh, desires. On the other hand, there's some element of the way we interact with MMA online where you're you're going to drive yourself crazy trying to do that all the time, and you're probably also just going to piss off a lot of the fighters who you already told uh, we're getting the title shot. But I can't be mad at this fight booking, really. It's one of these things where I hear people saying, oh, man, Ronda, it's too soon for Holly Holm. Ronda's just going to throw her down, arm bar her. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that probably will happen. Yeah. But I think that would happen if you gave Holly Holm another fight. I think it would happen with Ronda Rousey against just about anybody out there, with the possible exception of Cyborg Justino. And so I don't know if that's the the metric you want to start applying, is that Ronda Rousey is going to win this one and be a huge favorite to do it. I mean, that's pretty much all the Ronda Rousey bantamweight fights that are on the horizon right now. Same thing with Misha Tate. Yeah, I did have one guy hit me up on Twitter and be like, worthless fight. Ronda takes her down and submits her in round number one. And I was like, man, have you seen a Ronda Rousey fight before? Because that's going to happen no matter who you throw in there with her, for the most part. I agree on principle with the sentiment that, you know, the optimal thing to do would have been to give Holly Holm a couple more fights and maybe another year or so to get her legs under her uh, in the UFC. But at the same time, you know, she is one of the few fighters in this division that I think has the the physicality and the physical tools to uh, at least put forth the kind of fight that you need to have to beat Ronda Rousey. Not not that I think she will beat Ronda Rousey. I have no idea how she'll do. But like we've talked about on this show before, that if there is a secret to Ronda Rousey to beating Ronda Rousey, it's that you gotta you gotta be able to control the distance in the fight. You gotta stay out of of the judo zone, so to speak, uh, because once she gets you in that in the clinch or the you know she gets a hold of you, she's just gonna start chaining together those judo takedowns like a, a prodigy who's been doing it her entire life, and you're just never gonna be able to athletically close that gap. She's gonna get you sooner or later if that's what you do. And Holly Holm is tall and rangy and is a good striker and is very mobile. And, you know, if she fights the fight of her life and has a good game plan, it's possible uh, she does manage to make a contest out of it. Or at the very least, it does seem to present a different kind of question that than the one we've seen Ronda Rousey answer already. You, like you said, you know, tall, uh, rangy fighter who can with crisp striking who can use that. And the one criticism against Holly Holm, I think, so far in the UFC has, that been, has been that she's not been aggressive enough and that she's been a little too uh, content to kind of hang back. Uh, and maybe too patient. And as we all know, Ronda Rousey will get up there and get right up in your face. So maybe that'll kind of eliminate some of that. And if you, if you do that against Holly Holmes, she might be pretty well, uh, prepared to, to answer with something for it. So at the very least, I think it's going to be interesting. I, I don't have any problems making that fight. And I think if you get super mad about this fight, then it's one of those things like, give me an alternative. What would, what would you rather see? A realistic alternative. Uh, that you'd rather see the UFC make right now. Yeah, it's it's kind of splitting hairs as far as I'm concerned if you're going to try to act like you're going to be really mad about who Ronda Rousey is going to fight next. Um, I agree with you. One of the concerns here might be uh, where Holly Holm is mentally and, and how she has looked kind of like a slow starter in her first couple of fights. I'm sure we'll talk about this at much greater length as it gets closer to the actual bout. Uh, but you know, she goes in there with, with her physical skills and a game plan that she helps create with, with Greg Jackson and Mike Winklejohn and Brandon Gibson and all the other coaches at that place. Uh, who's to say they might not have, have something worked up that could at least give Ronda Rousey a little bit more trouble than the people we've seen, uh, most recently. Do you think 
we talked about this a little bit earlier in the round, but do you think there would have been as much outcry about this if we had not already been told that Ronda Rousey was going to fight Misha Tate? Like, no. If they had just come out and announced Rousey versus Holm as the first thing, there might have been some grumbling about how it was too soon for Holly Holm, but I feel like people, for whatever reason, would have been quicker to accept it. Right. And I mean, there was grumbling about Misha Tate, Ronda Rousey 3, like, for the exact reasons. That, and Dana White's right when he said that people felt like, oh, we've already seen it. And that's exactly what we all said. But it, that one also seemed like, well, well hey, what else are you going to do? There's not a ton of really super competitive options until we figure out what's going to go on with Cyborg Justino there. Uh, but I do think you're right that when you say Misha Tate's getting the fight and then Ronda Rousey shows up there, uh, grinning on Good Morning America saying she's going to fight Holly Holm and it feels like, well, and they, they didn't tell me she'd date, you oh, know, yeah. that, she, the, the she, rug kind of gets pulled out from under her. Yeah, that, that's, that's a bummer for her, man. It just kind of seems like, and we talked about this, I think in the Breakfast of Champions with the Stitch Duran thing, where it seemed like the UFC came around and lit that fire for itself all over again when, when, uh, Ike Epstein tried to claim they didn't fire him because of the Reebok thing after the controversy appeared to have died down. It seems like the UFC makes this trouble for itself sometimes where, and I, I don't know if you really want to uh, scald or scold Dana White for saying that Misha Tate had earned her way back to Ronda Rousey after she beat Jessica I or calling that Jessica I Misha Tate fight uh, a title eliminator when it seemed like they really wanted, you know, Jessica I to be the, the next challenger. Uh, but it just seems like if they had, if they were not kind of shooting from the hip, so much and just sort of saying stuff hashtag just saying stuff that think these things might come off a little easier sometimes yeah but i suppose that's a double-edged sword because then we would probably complain that they weren't giving us enough information or whatever so that could go either way yeah that absolutely could go either way but i don't know i mean i think that uh we it's one thing to say this is how people feel about it right now when we've just seen the change of plans i think once we get closer to the fight and people start uh, thinking about the matchup a little bit more, uh, I think that we're going to decide we maybe are more interested in this fight than a lot of people are claiming to be right now. Yeah, I'm super interested in it, actually. I, I think it will be a fun one to watch, no matter how it goes. Um, all right, Ben, well, let's do just saying stuff, and then we will get out of here for this week. Ben, what's your just saying stuff? No, you go first. I just went you first on... Uh... On the last one. Oh, what are you still trying to think of what you're doing? No, I, I know what I'm doing. A, come up with an idea. Uh, well, Ben, pretty much every commercial break during the Sunday Fight Night 74 was filled with ads for stuff like Life Alert. Okay. And boner drugs. <laughs> Wait, was it from Thailand? I did not get domestic a, boner drugs. I believe these are domestic okay. boner drugs, just in case you've either fallen and you can't get up or you just plain can't get it up. Uh, the UFC's advertisers apparently going to help us out with that. Uh, so I guess this week I'm just saying, have we all aged out of the key demos, man? Like, did did MMA audience get really old and we didn't even notice? Uh, is this is this still the fastest growing sport in the world, or are we all just starting in on the long slow march to our own extinction here? Because as I'm staying up late watching the six fight main card, this is the kind, these are the kind of commercials that really make me examine my own mortality, man. So you're or saying at least the mortality of my boner. I should return this life alert that I got for you. <laughs> no, keep that because they don't call me old man Dundas for nothing. I care about you. I'm just saying, man. I'm just saying. Just saying. Well, Chad, I'm just saying, did you hear that uh, World Series of Fighting is planning their own one-night eight-man lightweight tournament this November? 
I did. I haven't gotten the chance to truly consider it with the weight it deserves. But. This to to crown a number one contender in the lightweight. Oh, division. okay. That's so what you interesting. get by going through this crucible. I'm just saying stuff like this, stuff like a couple thirty five year olds and Patrick Cote and Josh Berkman throwing down stuff like everything basically that's happening with the heavyweight division makes me think that. Uh, MMA has decided either consciously or unconsciously that the way, the path to success is a sort of regression. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying how long until some promoter gets the brilliant idea of bare knuckles, no rounds, headbutts, uh, and just keeping it as real as it can really get, Chad. I'm just saying that seems to be the path we're headed down. Just saying. Yeah. Now that you mention it, I don't think that's probably too far from the truth. Do that thing – down there in, in Masan, Masandruba, Masanduba, Brazil. Maybe roll into Puerto Rico or something. That would be quite a throwback. Yeah. Maybe we'll, you can get Tank Abbott and, and that, that cab driver that Don Fry knocked out. What was that guy's name? Can't remember. Well, maybe we'll see if we can gather some investors. All right. Well, that's going to do it for this week's edition of the co-main event podcast. We will be back next week to look ahead to what is it? UFC 191? That's right. Next week. Uh, Demetrius Johnson against John Dodson, the, the, the rematch. We'll, we will look ahead to that. Uh, as for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. You know what I didn't expect for us to get? What's that? On this episode of the Coming Event Podcast was a Patrick Cote as the Russian Army uh, comparison. Well, I've, I've stamped by that.